You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to introduce us to sparse coding. Yeah, sparse coding is this really interesting idea that is one of the areas where I think uh, there's been a lot of successful overlap between uh, representations that we might find in neuroscience and actual machine learning algorithms that are useful for things. There's a lot of analogies that, that one draws, but sparse coding is something that, that really seems kind of relatively compelling and, as I said, is, has been somewhat successful. So the idea of sparse coding is, um, broadly speaking, to take some potentially high-dimensional data, classically something like an image, but also could be sounds or a variety of other things, and try to represent it in a very sparse way. So sparsity is this idea where we might represent something as a vector, and most of those vectors are zeros. Um, and then there's a few places that are non-zero. The idea is that information is encoded not just in uh, the sort of magnitudes of the non-zeros, but also which actual entries are non-zero. So sparse coding is interesting for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which is that the locations of the zero of the non-zero entries is often sort of interpretable. You can think of it as like an alternative to something like principal components analysis, but rather than winding up with a dense representation, we wind up with a sparse representation. And somehow the sparsity uh, helps us understand what the dimensions of the representation actually mean a little bit more than um, than the dense uh, representations. And often, it's a kind of a way to rethink what it means to um, to be compact. So things like um, PCA, you know, try to find something that is low dimensional, uh, or maybe that minimizes some um, some notion of length, like L2 norm. Uh, and for example, if you want to solve an underdetermined linear system, then you know, a natural thing is to do like a more Penrose pseudo inverse, which basically says, you know, find a solution uh, that find one of them out of all the, the many possible solutions that exist, find one that um, that minimizes like, uh, you know, kind of like how long the vector is. A sparsity view on that basically says instead of trying to find the one that sort of has the shortest like L2 norm or the smallest L2 norm, instead find one that has as many zeros as you can find. And that's a kind of a different way to talk about what it means to be compact and often leads to sort of very interesting models. Sparse coding is this idea where you try to both learn codes for particular data points, but also learn what we typically call the dictionary uh, that corresponds to each of those each of those dimensions. So this is this larger thing is also often called dictionary learning, where the idea is that I want to learn a kind of a, a template, like a, a basis function almost, that is that is going to correspond to each of these dimensions of the code. And then most of them are zero, but the ones that are non-zero, uh, those kind of pluck out those elements of the dictionary, weigh them according to sort of how big the entry is, and then add those all up together. And it turns out that doing this can often sort of pluck out interesting interesting sort of separable parts uh, in things like images, or like it learns kind of interesting, um, what we think of as kind of like filters that, um, again, have a lot more sort of interpretability than a dense model. But it also allows you to do something that um, is a little bit surprising, which is come up with something called an overcomplete representation. So an overcomplete representation is where you take your high dimensional data and you actually come up with a representation that is even higher dimensional, which sounds kind of crazy and like it could not possibly work. But the point is that if we, if we require every one of those data in this much higher dimensional space to have a huge number of zeros, then it's still compact. And the reason this is interesting is because it allows you to sort of identify possibly very complicated patterns as long as any given data example doesn't have very many of them. This turns out to be a fantastic way to do sort of automatic feature representation. Before this more recent era of, of lots of convolutional neural networks, 
one interesting way to do to sort of learn a computer vision system was to do something like sparse coding and find a big sort of overcomplete feature representation for your data and then apply a relatively simple uh, supervised learning algorithm to the top of that. So you could imagine sort of trying to solve uh, visual object recognition by first learning this really big sparse representation of a bunch of images and then just using like a linear SVM or something really simple um, on top of that. This kind of whole thing was kind of started, I think, about like 1997 or thereabouts by Bruno uh, Olshausen and David Field. And then it's been, uh, it's kind of kind of continued to be studied, you know, for the last sort of like uh, 15 or, or 20 years. One of the things that's really interesting about it is that in a lot of ways, the what seems to be the the way that the brain seems to represent information is through action potentials. So action potentials are where you sort of have very little activity and then there's a sudden sort of burst or a spike uh, that that goes down an axon and then is transmitted across uh, uh, synaptic connections. And um, and these, this kind of spiking activity in the brain seems very different from the typical kind of way that we do machine learning with dense representations. So rather than there being a sort of constant transmission of some real number, there's kind of nothing, 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 and then a spike. And so one of the things that's really appealing about figuring out how to do sparse representations is that they're much more analogous to, uh, they seem much more analogous to action potentials. You, you have a bunch of zeros, no activity, and then a sudden, uh, a sudden burst of activity. And so... Some of the original work by Olshausen and Field and then followed up by Lewicki and other folks really looked at uh, the relationship between the kinds of things that you might discover like in the early visual system or in parts of the brain that process auditory information. And they found representations that seem to look very, you know, that is kind of basis functions that are very similar to those that um, that sparse coding discovers. And so it's really interesting that it seems that there's some uh, algorithms that are valuable from an engineering point of view, but also have a surprising correspondence to the kind of representations we see um, in the systems that are performing sort of the early stages of perception in the brain. We'll have more about sparse coding on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's question comes from Lore Sar, and he asks, after AlphaGo, what do you and Ryan and Catherine consider to be the next attainable challenge for attention-seeking AI? So one thing that I've been seeing a lot in the media lately is examples, successful examples of self-driving cars. There was that big convoy that went from, I believe, Germany to North Africa of semi-trucks. There was one um, human-driven truck, and then I, I believe a group of other automated trucks that, that followed behind it. Maybe trucks, like, truck, 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 like the transformers. We have sound effects here. It's like, <laughs> um, yeah, so so I think self-driving cars are are a really interesting advance. I think I think the a lot of the success there is not really AI type success, but it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like larger engineering systems building better instrumentation and kind of um, things that feel a little bit more like traditional signal processing. Um, that may be not fair, but I think I think the like the parts of that that feel like kind of AI research, I think are relatively small and unimportant relative to the larger engineering effort of building a self-driving car. I think one of the things that I think we are going to see in the next couple of years is probably a lot better uh, adaptive control systems for Hmm. complicated like robotics and things like that. Um, There's this kind of always this interplay between solving problems with better mechanical engineering and better sort of traditional control systems and say like walking robots and things like that. 
um, versus more uh, sort of like machine learning-y type approaches that try to learn these control systems and, and allow for fancier nonlinearity and things like that. I don't know if that'll be super flashy. Uh, it's hard to know what the kind of the next, um, you know, what the next kind of like uh, hurdle is. It's I don't I don't see any really obvious ones. There's a lot of interest right now in like chatbots, and people are thinking about how to make interactions through natural language uh, feel more, uh, you know, feel more sort of lifelike. Mostly, this has been failures so far, possibly very visible failures by like Microsoft and some other folks. But the uh, nevertheless, I think I think we're starting to get better at this kind of thing. I, I guess uh, I guess the larger picture here is I think we're just going to get incrementally better at a lot of problems. And so it's going to sneak up on us a little bit. So I think we're going to get a lot. We're going to see interesting advances in speech recognition over the next several years that are going to matter. So the idea of something like, you know, the Amazon Echo, that was not really viable, you know, five or 10 years ago at all. But now, uh, you know, it kind of works. I mean, it, the question answering isn't great, but the voice recognition is pretty good. So I think we'll see some stuff like that. I think one thing we'll start to see are sort of like AI personal assistants that actually do useful things. Uh, like maybe like schedule your stuff or help you order your groceries. I'm not exactly sure what they'll do, but I think we're sort of starting to get better at this kind of thing. It's not going to feel very much like strong AI, but it's going to be kind of weak AI that works on on more things. Another area that's going to get a lot better, I expect, is translation, uh, machine translation, that that will start to become uh, faster and better and more readily available and will integrate with speech recognition uh, more seamlessly. So I would expect to see improvements there. So I don't think there's a really obvious kind of like next big hurdle so much as I think there's a lot of problems that for which we sort of have 90% solutions and we'll start to see those become 99% solutions. And on a lot of these, that last sort of that last 10% will make a really big difference in how we actually use the technology. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Clément Ferrebet. He is with the Twitter Cortex Research Group. And when I got to talk with him at NIPS this past year, I asked him the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Um, my background is basically I, I, I met with Yann uh, Lequin Le um, in 2008. And um, he offered me a, a, you know, a, a sort of like internship position to finalize my master's in France. And um, we very quickly clicked, you know, like uh, we, we got along very well, very quickly. Like we both had the same sort of like interest um, in terms of hardware, uh, like building cool new circuits and, and, and uh, also this sort of like fascination for AI and neural networks. And, and so I started working with him. Uh, the, the, the big first project I worked on was basically developing this, this like customized circuits to uh, implement neural networks. And I worked on that for maybe three years. Uh, we got a patent out of it. Um, we had a lot of fun. Um, and progressively, I, I, I moved towards like working on algorithms more. Um, and I got ex really excited about the idea of you know doing computer vision in real time and 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 getting these these types of algorithms to the next level, so I started working on this um, like very challenging task of um, you know like full sort of like image recognition, parsing, segmentation, classification. I really wanted to do all these things at once, and um, 
And I didn't want to work on this sort of like small incremental thing of like, you know, getting an extra percent and one very particular data set. And, and, um, and again, so I worked on this for two years and also had a lot of fun. And at some point, I, I, I really wanted to start a company. And, um, and, uh, and I met with Louis Alexandre, um, who was doing his PhD with uh, Hiro Simoncelli uh, in neuroscience and psychology. And, uh, and we also clicked. Um, he was like extremely enthusiastic and, and driven, and, and he, he saw the potential of you know, computer vision, what it could bring to new types of applications in the web and so on. Um, and so we started you know, sort of like randomly hacking new projects around the tech that we had at the time. And uh, keep in mind that this was before that sort of like big revolution of, you know, like deep networks being very easily trainable at scale. At the time, it wasn't, you know, like we were missing a few very simple ideas, um, like the idea of using a rectified linear unit in neural nets, which basically made all the difference. Um, and so because we didn't have that, um, it was still quite hard to train models that were you know, like re really getting amazing performance. Uh, so we were still, you know, we still had to do a lot of like computer vision tricks, you know, mixing these things with, uh, you know, all sorts of like engineering and, um, and, uh, and so, but, we, you know, we, we, we got to build these, these prototypes, these demos, and, um, and, uh, and we quickly thought that we had something, you know, like, uh, the idea of like you know organizing uh, photo libraries um, and and then potentially like selling this as a service you know um, so that's when we decided to look for an investor and we met our third investor uh, Paul Block um, which was uh, I mean uh, the, all that time was really exciting because we 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 were working very hard and didn't exactly know where we were going because the tech was evolving so fast. Um, and right about that time was when the ImageNet paper came out, uh, and and so then suddenly all the spotlights sort of like. So, so when you say the ImageNet paper, you mean the AlexNet, the, the AlexNet that sort of uh, showed that ComNets would be yeah. very competitive with the ImageNet. Absolutely, level. yeah. It was and about so 2012. Right? 2012, yeah. end of 2012, and this sort of changed everything because suddenly people started to be interested in that stuff. Whereas before it was really just a, a handful of people, you know, doing this stuff and and not getting so much intention, uh, and so suddenly we actually could raise money very easily, right? Uh, so we 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 just started the company. Um, this was uh, the company was called Madbits, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's Madbits. Um, and uh, and then the rest is sort of so so we so we built a bunch of prototypes and API. Uh, we started to you know try to license that uh, API to a bunch of companies. So I'm gonna leave the names out, but well, well, how did the API work? So you would give it an image or maybe yeah. a URL or something, and it would give you a class or yeah, essentially yeah, you would give it an image uh, or video, and it would basically classify the image. We also developed an API to do um, customization so that you could actually show it uh, examples of a particular instance of an object and it would basically learn the manifold of, of that object in some sort of, sort of like fixed representation of the image. Um, and so we developed an application that was basically, you know, um, classif classifying all the images that you had on your phone. Um, so something that was very similar to Google Photos now. Um, Except at the time, it was very hard for us to actually build the backend to, you know, like actually actually back up all these photos and 
and you know do this at scale, right? Uh, but we had a great demo that was basically classifying all these photos, and then you could actually show it. You know, start naming entities in your album. You know, like giving giving a photo the name of your cat, and then it would pull similar images in your library. And because the library is sort of finite, it's actually quite straightforward. You know, to get other instances of your cat, and uh, and uh, and you know, this product sort of like started generating generating traction. Um, what, what was the product called? The product. This product didn't have a name actually. Um, Find your cat. <laughs> yeah, friend <laughs> of cat. Um, we we had a few other apps before. One of them ended up in the App Store and was uh, featured for a while. It was called Momentia, mm -hmm. uh, and the app was about you know capturing moments and uh, creating sort of like collages automatically. Um, um, so moments is a name that then became very popular. By the way. Um, the um but this app like we we never got to release it uh because in less than eighteen months we basically got acquired by twitter um so this happened after we we met with kevin Kenesson at uh, twitter uh so we also clicked with him very quickly uh Kevin had amazing uh plans of of sort of like building a a whole layer of intelligence at twitter he wanted to organize you know, media, uh, videos, um, everything that was posted on the platform. And he had a really great vision for, you know, how to start doing, you know, something amazing with all that data, basically. And um, that was very appealing to, to me because Twitter is one of the only places that is very open. Uh, like all the data that people post on the platform is essentially public. And so it's sort of unique, you know, like in, in most other companies, you have this issue that data is private. Uh, it, it's, it's always sandboxed and it's very hard to, to access. For the types of algorithms and technology that, that we have, having data that's public and, and you know, like shareable across uh, users is, is a huge advantage. Uh, so we got very excited by that and um, we joined Twitter. Um, and then we had quite an adventure. Um, we uh, initially just worked on like very specific uh, image and video, you know, projects because that's where our car technology was. Um, but as we went through, you know, months at the company, we we realized that building a sort of like much broader uh, machine learning investment and and effort would be really um you know critical and and made a lot of sense and that's where we met with the wet lab folks um so we uh invited ryan i think early 2000 earlier this year basically yeah. um and we asked them to give us a presentation i got very excited about the idea of merging our efforts and building a much sort of like broader stronger team um and and then very quickly we sort of like pitched um the folks at Twitter to to ex expand the size of the group and um, uh, Louis Alexandre came up with the, the idea of creating this 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 uh, new group called Cortex, um, which um, you know and things then sort of like moved on pretty quickly. We created the group, uh, the wet lab folks joined, and um, and very quickly after we. We ended up with a team that's now like very general, uh, broader, and um, and our ambition is really to to tackle sort of like everything machine learning uh, within Twitter. 
Um, and then this, I think Ryan could add a few things. <laughs> yeah, that's that's I, I completely agree with uh, with that ambition. I mean, we, yeah, the mission of Cortex being to really try to touch all of the different uh, the different content and aspects of, of Twitter with machine learning. So, but sort of uh, that's an amazing summary, by the way. So, it sounds like you um, you sort of have an electrical engineering background. I mean, so you know you described a I think a quite unique trajectory coming to deep learning and machine learning via thinking hard about about circuits can you talk a little bit about that kind of uh, approach so is this do you have a kind of like a signal processing background sure yeah i do i um like the the, the so originally i i really like the, the the first major projects i worked on were were basically extremely low level you know i i sort of ha- have this mind where i cannot use something that I don't fully understand. And so as I started programming uh, when I was younger, I, I just couldn't accept the fact that there was a compiler and the compiler was doing something and then there was a machine that was completely obscure and I just couldn't accept that. So I, as the, you know, I, I just kept going, you know, be, below, 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 below. And, uh, and at some point I started building computers like from the ground up, you know. Uh, uh, starting from the concept of transistor and how you represent bits, and 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 I just couldn't just accept, you know, reading about that stuff. I actually had to build them, you know. Um, so I spent quite some time, you know, like uh, building all sorts of like very specialized circuits to to implement functions. And and uh, one of the first projects I I did, uh, and that was in Australia, back in 2006, um, was to basically. Uh, build a system that would do real-time tracking uh, of a beacon uh, to basically assist unmanned helicopters to land on moving platforms. So it was a project funded by the Navy, the U.S. Navy, by the way, interestingly. Um, and uh, and the project was very exciting. Wait, because wait, so the U.S. Navy was funding a French citizen to work in Australia on, <laughs> so on finding... Uh, <laughs> Who's on first? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is really great. Um and the project was a lot of fun, um, and 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 sort of like as as I was working on this stuff, I I, I started getting very interested in neural networks um, because I was seeing these these functions as sort of sort of the, as as the ultimate way of approximating a- anything essentially, and um, I think it's a very sort of like electrical engineering way of of looking at machine learning, right? I think a lot of people who have a double background, um, tend to have this sort of like connectionist view of, of everything. And it's this sort of big hammer they have in their mind and they want to solve everything with that. Um, but so I started building like more complex uh, computer architectures and, and, and when I joined Yen, uh, the sort of like proposal was to build a, a fully programmable uh, computers with, you know, with a proper instruction set uh, that would implement very specific um, operations tuned for uh, neural networks, essentially. So, you know, mat- matrix multiplications, convolutions, nonlinearities, piecewise approximations of these things. Um, so, so you didn't do this with analog circuitry? With you, what? With analog circuitry? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> you, you so, know, there, there's so this kind of like hardware agenda for this. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but, uh, but I, I re- quickly realized that um, you know, like the sort of like um, digital abstra- abstraction was enough, um, and the um, and the what's, what was fascinating for me is how how we, 
how we could sort of like come up with an instruction set that w would be so powerful that you could actually run these algorithms uh, at a you know sort of like speed that would be one, two, three orders of magnitude higher than what we could achieve with regular CPUs. Um, and and we got pretty far, you know, like that that circuit was. Uh, a very exciting project, uh, but then the GPU sort of like revolution came in. Uh, people at NVIDIA like made like significant investments in that field, and um, and it changed everything because you the sort of like ease of uh, programming these GPUs made that type of work essentially obsolete. Um, one of the things we did at the time too is that the uh, that entire sort of like you know computer architecture was uh, meta-programmed, so you could actually generate the hardware itself from a sort of like high-level description, and then we also had a compiler that was written entirely in Lisp, by the way, uh, which was taking arbitrary descriptions of neural networks and compiling them into a, a sort of like sequence of instructions for the the processor, and and the cool thing about that 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 stuff is that. The, the processor itself worked as a reconfigurable grid. And so the instruction set was basically a set of grid connections. And so to run an actual neural net, you would basically reconnect these things on the fly and then pump data through it. Um, so we had a lot of fun doing that, you know. So, you know, the, the sort of landscape of hardware for machine learning and in particular for deep learning has continued to to evolve. I mean, there are... Um, several startups out there and, and you know, within, I, I think, the kind of um, like computer architecture community, a lot of people are interested in, in this now. Um, what's your sort of take on this? Is it, is it hopeless? Is everyone going to lose to NVIDIA or eventually Intel? Like, what's the, how do you see this, this thing moving? I think it's become, it's become extremely challenging now. Um, NVIDIA is, uh, is doing an amazing job at sort of like targeting the high-end HPC-like space uh, where, you know, for training these models at scale in a distributed manner, uh, they've sort of like taken over the entire space. Um, and and where there's still some room uh, for maybe startups to compete is in the mobile space, uh, where someone could come up with a sort of like very specialized circuit that would optimize for these functions and, and give you these capabilities at, a, at very low power, uh, which is really the, the dream. Um, but the issue is even there, um, you still have a trade-off between sort of like reconfigurability, generality, and power efficiency. And it's still very unclear what we want to do with these algorithms. Uh, so, um, you know, it's not like we can predict that in two years from now, the types of convnets we're going to use are exactly what they are today. Uh, we could come up with an entirely new way of, um, you know, computing the first layers and and it could turn out that doing convolutions with filters of, of gigantic sizes or, um, or do, doing things in Fourier space is more advantageous. And so there's so many sort of like things that keep changing that for a startup to come up with a circuit that would solve for this problem seems very challenging. When I've sort of dabbled in this space very, very lightly, one of the things that always seems to come up is this question of sort of data locality in, in the hardware that you, you, you essentially have uh, topological constraints. And you know pumping data to sort of all the different pieces of, uh, of a piece of hardware, as well as storing the different, the different weights always seems challenging. Um, 
did that come did this kind of issue come up at all for you or or did or was this kind of early enough that it was mostly about making sort of matrix multiplies faster or so yeah. i mean that's basically the core of the problem uh you know like the uh the IO to the data and to the f filters and to all the parameters of the models is basically the bottleneck. And, um, and, and so, so the sort of like interesting idea in the design we had was that the entire um, design was basically a streaming architecture. And so everything was optimizing for maxing out the bandwidth to an external DRAM. Um, and the entire architecture was sort of like thought with that constraint in mind. And uh, I think around 2010 or 11, we started working with um, IBM uh, because they were coming up with this new technology that allowed you to stack DRAM on top of um, you know like re regular ASIC technology. And uh, the dream there was to have a sort of like you know vertical vertical connections between these two things, so that you could get bandwidths that would be two orders of magnitude higher. But still rely on DRAM. Um, and D literal depth in your yeah, network. Yeah, literal right? depth. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, by stacking, which uh, which I, uh, has never really seen the light yet. Um, but that would basically address those issues by giving you orders of magnitude more bandwidth. You know, speaking of of IBM, but also you know, there, there's a kind of a larger community that has been thinking a lot about what was called sort of neuromorphic computing. So taking in, in some ways, more seriously representations uh, in the brain, such as spiking and so on, uh, integrated fire and things like that, um, as as sort of primitives for building for building hardware for for machine learning and for neural networks. Um, you know, is this something you is this a community you've interacted with at all? I, I guess it's IBM True North. I think yeah, is, the, is yeah. the chip that does this. What, what's your sort of yeah. take on that? As somebody who has deep experience, yeah. I mean, so I know a few people who've uh, worked in that that space for quite some time, and um, and you know, I think it's uh, it's it's an interesting area of research in the sense that you know it's sort of like exotic and and you're pushing the limits of um, you know some forms of of hardware constraints, um, but I don't think it has any practical interest. Um, all of these sort of like very low-level models of neurons are entirely simulable, and uh, and I think it makes way more sense to invest in like distributed HPC models to simulate these things, because there's no, I mean, there's no, there's not a scenario in which you want to reach real time for these things, and so it's very unclear to me why you would want to build specialized hardware that actually emulates those low-level properties of the brain. Yeah, it always seems like this area. I, I'm kind of a fan in some ways of the broad area of neuromorphic computing, but it always seems like there's a tension that's very hard, which is that if you want to do sort of, you really want to understand neurophysiology, then you need to take the sort of properties of neurons much more seriously than this community Absolutely. does. On the other hand, if what your objective is, is to build a, you know, a state-of-the-art visual object recognition system, then you would not handicap yourself with biological plausibility. So they sort of land somewhere in the middle, which is kind of intellectually interesting, but doesn't really solve a problem on either side yeah yeah so um one of the uh switching topics a little bit so one of the so when i when i teach introductory machine learning one of the uh i, I really like to show demos and uh and long before you know you and i met um i would always show your uh your scene parsing your live scene parsing <laughs> <That's> demo <good. laughs> so the uh because i just i love this video so so to describe what this is so essentially, uh, you could imagine 
someone walking around Manhattan with uh, a set of like GoPro cameras kind of strapped to your head, giving you a wide field of view. And then, Clement, you built a system that essentially labels every single pixel in real time at a frame rate of must be 10 frames per second or yes. something. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, if, if a pixel appears to be uh, a piece of asphalt on the street or a sidewalk or a building or a dog or a car, that it, it sort of actively in real time tries to tries to label all of these. Um, I don't know. Can you talk about the, about that work? Yeah, I mean, so so this work was um, one of the the coolest things I worked on. I think um, we I got very excited with this idea of of exactly what you said. You know, like labeling every pixel uh, in a visual stream and building a system that could truly sort of like decompose and understand the entire scene, as opposed to you know, like the sort of more traditional approach in computer vision that, that was, you know, sort of decomposing the problem in sub-problems that are all simpler, like detection and, and very manual ways of sort of like doing all these steps. Uh, here the goal was really to sort of like train this big, massive uh, neural net to associate raw inputs to end predictions. Um, and, uh, and I was also always like you know like really constraining myself to have the system run in real time um, because I, I really wanted this thing to enable things like uh, autonomous uh, car navigation and things like that and, uh, and it's funny that you mentioned this, uh, this this idea of strapping GoPros on a helmet because that's exactly what we did so uh, at the time I was working with uh, someone whose name is Marcos Coffier who essentially strapped four webcams on a helmet. And uh, and once we had the first version of that system, he drove around in Manhattan. And uh, we collected tons of you know, train, training data and generated these 360 feeds of completely parsed um, uh, video segments. You know, um, And the system was working pretty well. At the time, it was still very challenging to, to train these things at scale. And one of the big sort of like pitfall of these systems is that they required very fine-grained uh, labeling. Everything was completely supervised, so you had to teach the system exactly, you know, these, these pixels belong to a person, these pixels belong to a road, um, and, and the field of deep learning still hasn't really evolved much out of this, this, this place. Uh, we're still doing most of what we do, I mean, most, most of what we do right now that works is still done in a way that's completely supervised. Um, and uh, and in terms of engineering, it's great, uh, but I I do hope that we you know the field progresses and we get out of this local minimum. Yeah, well, I would say that I mean one of the things I find inspirational about that work is that particularly kind of in retrospect, it was very forward thinking, right, along a couple of dimensions. You know that that work, you know, you did that before yeah. again, like sort of connets and relus and and the kind of the current era of let's say hype surrounding you know um, these kinds of techniques for uh, for visual object recognition and computer vision in general you know if you went to CPPR at that time right you would you might still have had a hard time getting a getting a convent uh, you know accepted in fact uh, <laughs> that paper got rejected uh, one or two times from uh, computer vision conferences and it ended up being accepted at uh, ICML, which was probably a better place for those types of things and and then you you sent it to IEEE PAMI I think later yeah. right as well yeah. The uh, and and so you know so it was kind of like you know really great work done at a time when it was it was not yet considered the mainstream way to solve these problems these days right that's that's kind of like you know what it's all about um, but then also you you know it 
it's a structure prediction problem. This yes. is one of the things I find really interesting is that the uh, you know the ImageNet sort of worldview and the speech recognition worldview in some ways like has really been about you know coming up with uh, relatively well defined scalar labels. I, I guess speech recognition isn't exactly like that, but certainly visual object recognition as it's done in ImageNet is entirely about sort of producing a you know producing an estimate of the label. Whereas what you did there was, you know, trying to produce a coherent ensemble of labels that reflects sort of the spatial structure of the fact that, you know, if I know that this pixel is asphalt, yeah. then, uh, you know, the the pixel right next to it is probably also asphalt. The uh, uh, But, you know, it seems to me that even though structure prediction is, a, is an important part of the sort of larger machine learning space, that deep learning has not really sort of gotten into that. I mean, do you have any thoughts on kind of what the trajectory would be for, for continuing to think about uh, sort of ensembles of labels? Yeah, so so I think, you know, th there's been some great pioneering work in that uh, space in the 90s. Um, and really, so like the, so the the biggest inspiration for me was this paper from uh, Yann Lequin and uh, Léon Botou in 98 about document uh, recognition. So they had this amazing paper where they were basically uh, jointly uh, training a system to do segmentation and recognition of characters to basically do uh, handwritten recognition. And the paper was, was really great because it was sort of like, it was one of the first like big successes in um, structured prediction. Um, uh, one of the things that was sort of simpler at the time was that they were doing that in 1D. Uh, so doing sort of like 1D segmentation, you can use things like VTRB to, uh, you know, segment the, the, the graph. Um, in this case, like for full sort of like image and video parsing, you have, you're going 2D. And so all of these things, none of these things work anymore, basically. Uh, but I always had this sort of like framework in mind, you know, like how can we sort of like define a graph of, of, of things and then backprop through that graph so that we can train an underlying model to give us the right weights and the edges of that graph. And uh, and I love this paradigm. I mean, I think it's something that applies for you know scene parsing and those types of things, but it could be applied to all sorts of other things. Well, you know that you have some structure in the output space. Um, but I think the reason that people are not investing in that area so much is that you know, maybe a couple of reasons. Like people are, are having way too many successes right now and using like just simple neural nets uh, on all sorts of tasks. And uh, and there's also this fun, funny tendency in, in, in research where, you know, data sets get assembled to give us enough uh, sort of like challenge so that we move forward by a bit, but, but not too much so that we can still do something. Uh, at the time when we started working on this, it was not exactly like that. You know, like these data sets were really probably like five years ahead in terms of like complexity and and it was almost impossible to solve properly basically and i don't think we we have the right solution today i would love to see more people actually get back to that 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 type of research yeah so um maybe to sort of wrap up a little bit i i'd love to hear you know so we've you know, you've been at NIPS now a couple of a couple of days this week and there's been a lot of exciting work going on what what's uh and what's really capturing your interest this week? Um, I mean, I, the, the, um, the biggest thing that, um, there's two things that really excite me. Uh, and they might have come up before NIPS, but they, they're being presented this week. Uh, one of them is this paper from um, DeepMind uh, about learning uh, 
to project, uh, learning a, a sort of like projection of an input image to simplify the, the work of uh, classification pipeline. Um, so they basically parameterize uh, homography and learn the parameters of the homography. Um, is this the spatial transformer the network? spatial transformer network, yeah. Really think this type of work is, is, is interesting. It's really the idea of you know, differentiating and backpropagating through anything that moves, basically. And uh, and I love that you know a lot of folks are sort of like pushing the limits and, and coming up with new ways of, of doing these things. Similarly, like the the the, the space of, of of things around memory networks and neural Turing machines, um, I find this work very interesting. I mean, the idea of backpropagating through you know like uh, making a sort of like memory block differentiable and. And the idea of seeing all these blocks as as units that you can connect together—it's a, it's a very connectionist view of of uh, of the world. And uh, and again, as a, an electrical engineer, I, I, it's, it really resonates with me. Yeah. Clément Ferbe of Twitter. It's really interesting to hear him talk about the work that they're doing. Yeah, he, well, and I should say that we're doing. I, yes. I'm a part of Twitter Cortex as well, and uh, I feel very lucky to get to work alongside Clément. He's really fantastic. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode.